Hi, Dave Emery here. This is, for the record, program number 842, interview number 5 with Peter Lavenda about the Hitler legacy. This is being recorded on March 29th of the year 2015. Once again, it is my privilege and my pleasure to bring back to our airwaves Peter Lavenda, the author of, among other books, The Hitler Legacy, which is the focal point of our discussion uh, in these talks. Peter, welcome to our airwaves. Thank you very much. I'm happy to be back. Um, let's plunge right in uh, where we left off in, uh, for the record, eight. 41. We have been talking about the post-war Nazi diaspora, or what I have called and you have called, in effect, an underground Reich, and uh, the way in which uh, really virulent Nazis, SS men, Gestapo men, men who worked for the SD, the SS intelligence services, a service, I should say, many of them war criminals of the first order, uh, went to work ostensibly, or they, they went to work for Western intelligence, and yet they were also using uh, that position as a vantage point from which to perpetuate uh, their Nazi ideology. You analyze some of the institutions that functioned in that uh, sort of Janus-faced capacity, on the one hand working with Western intel and also at the same time serving as a fount for renaissance uh, Nazism. Uh, let's start with Otto Skorzeny. Well, actually, let, let's start with an organization called Stille Hilfe, or Silent Help, and a woman who generally isn't very well-known in Gudrun Berwitz, but her father was very well-known. Uh, yeah. Uh, Stille Hilfe means uh, basically silent help. Um, in German, it was the a name given to an aid organization for assistance uh, to help SS prisoners of war. That was about 1946. But in 1951, it uh, was taken over by uh, a woman who was called Princess von Eisenberg. Uh, she was an aristocrat. Um, she uh, was very much involved in helping uh, SS officers escape justice. We, we have to understand, uh, before we get into... Uh, Gudrun Berwitz and the fact that she was the daughter of Heinrich Himmler and one of the uh, organizers of Stille Hilfe, we should understand that why would you why would you create an aid organization uh, for SS prisoners of war specifically? Uh, to remind uh, the listeners, the SS was considered by the Allies to be a criminal organization like the Mafia. If you belonged to the SS, you were automatically subject to arrest. Um, you could be in prison for weeks, months, years, depending upon uh, your dossier, what uh, crimes uh, were attributed to you, what units you were involved with, etc. during the war. So if you were a member of the SS, you were automatically subject to arrest. There was no way an SS officer, particularly an officer, would walk away without being arrested and spending some time in custody, in Allied custody. So in 1946, um, this organization, Stille Hilfe, was started. It uh, it was in 46 when it was started, but in 51 it became really an official organization, officially organized by an aristocratic lady, Elizabeth Princess von Eisenberg. Um, one of its founding members, uh, for instance, was also um, an assistant to Ernst Kaltenbrunner. Uh, Kaltenbrunner was an SS officer um, who was executed uh, at, after Nuremberg. There was um, others like uh, Wilhelm Spengler and, and other organizations. The, the full name of Stille Hilfe was the, the Silent Help 
were prisoners of war and the interned. Uh, all those prisoners of war, of course, were SS. Uh, they were involved very deeply with something called the Nauman Circle. The Nauman Circle was an organization, a political organization in Austria uh, in the 1940s and early 1950s. This was uh, a kind of a conspiracy of former SS officers to form a political party to take over the Austrian government. Uh, it was being head, uh, headed by uh, Dr. Werner Naumann. That's why it was called the Naumann Circle. He was the successor to Josef Goebbels. Remember that uh, in April of 45, uh, Josef Goebbels and his wife and entire family uh, committed suicide or was murdered um, at the, uh, the Berlin Chancery Gardens outside of the bunker. Uh, so well, Werner Naumann was the one designated to take over the Reich's propaganda ministry. So that's how dedicated a Nazi we're talking about. Not only was he a Nazi, but he was the propaganda minister, the new propaganda minister after Goebbels. You had to be a very dedicated, very uh, uh, focused ideologue to be in that position. But he managed to escape denazification uh, uh, procedures. He didn't, uh, he didn't spend very much time in jail. And then uh, he uh, tried to create a Nazi party of his own in Austria. Uh, part of the membership of that is uh, someone we talked about last time, uh, Otto Rammer, was very much involved with Nauman and with the circle around him. Um, they were trying to infiltrate the government and uh, formed alliances with people like uh, Leon de Grel. Uh, Leon de Grel was a Belgian Nazi, very famous. He uh, survived the war. Uh, he lived in Spain for some time. He lived in France. He was an intimate of Otto Skarzeny and Hans Ulrich Rudel. He was part of that that uh, coterie of Nazi ideologues were keeping the flame of Nazism alive. Um, he was uh, part of the circle as well. That's mentioned in the Hans Ulrich Rudel address book. Uh, part of the people who were very much involved ideologically and financially in supporting some of the Nazi movements in the United States. And as I've mentioned at some point in, in our proceedings, uh, some of the names in that address book are of people in different parts of the world who are still alive and who had benefited from the uh, contacts they had with Leon de Grel and with the organization called Stilla Hilfe. Uh, Peter, if you would, uh, excuse me, if you would uh, encapsulate uh, the, which is perhaps impossible, but the uh, career of uh, Hans Ulrich Rudel, it's not a name we've developed at length uh, previously, and, oh, and, yes. and a very important one. Yes, I mean, since we're talking about Stilla Hilfe and some of the other uh, Nazi, post-war Nazi uh, organizations, uh, we'll develop, uh, we'll talk about the Schmina and Odessa and all the rest. Um, Hans Ulrich Rudel stands at the top. He's there with Skorzeny. He's there with uh, Otto Rimmer uh, at the very top of the list of organizers of the Nazi underground movement. Hans Ulrich Rudel was an ace pilot during World War II, a very devoted uh, uh, military man. Uh, an excellent pilot, as a matter of fact. He is credited with something like 80 kills, which makes him a, sort of a monster of, a, of, a, of an ace. He um, was captured, of course, at the end of the war uh, by the Allies. He was denazified, uh, which was a process by which they the Allies determined whether or not the, such a person was going to be a threat. Was he a real Nazi? Was he somebody who should be in jail? Did he commit war crimes, etc.? Uh, Hans Ulrich Rudel did not commit any war crimes. He was um, a pilot. During, during World War II in the Luftwaffe. So there was no you know, idea that he might have been a war criminal. He didn't, uh, was not accused of anything like that. So he managed to escape any kind of prosecution after the war. But his experience of uh, the denazification process, uh, I was told, uh, made him even more of a Nazi than he had been 
uh, in the first place. Um, the, the, the story behind that is quite interesting, but Hans Ulrich Rudel then became very much involved with Odessa, with the underground uh, Nazi movement. He became kind of a poster child for um, the, the new Nazi organizations around the world. He had been hit, had wounded in the, in the war. He walked with a limp. He had a wooden leg. Um, but he was very, again, very charismatic. He was like a Scorzani, a similar kind of character, a person who flew into the, the face of danger and came out and bragged about it, was full of braggadocio, uh, was the kind of guy that uh, charmed all of the, uh, the, the nascent uh, Nazis out there in different parts of the world, very much like a Remmer or a Scorzani. Um, the, the importance of Rudel cannot be overestimated because Rudel actually worked for our government for a certain period of time after the war, something that's not very well known. Uh, I spoke with uh, one of the people who uh, was involved with Rudel. Um, the, the government was interested at one point, or the, the Defense Department was interested, in how to improve jets, uh, fighter jets, and how to, what they could do to make a better plane. Um, and uh, one of the people mentioned in the address book um, had actually been, uh, who was fluent in German, had spoken to Rudel on a number of occasions to get his opinions as to uh, what constituted a good plane, uh, what kind of controls were necessary, what kind of uh, sensitivity of the controls, et cetera, et cetera. Technical ideas. Rudel was not an engineer, but he was an excellent pilot, so he could offer a lot of information to our government to help them develop a better plane. But at the same time that these discussions were going on with us, with our government, Rudel was running back and forth to Latin America. He knew um, Klaus Barbie, Personally, the butcher of Lyon, a very famous war criminal who was eventually extradited to France to stand trial, uh, Klaus Barbie lived in Bolivia under the assumed name of uh, Klaus Altmann. You will find Klaus Altmann's name and address in the Hans Ulrich Rudel uh, address book in the back of the Hitler legacy, which means that he knew Barbie when Barbie was still in Bolivia, you know, living under an assumed name. He knew the Mengele family. Uh, he knew virtually everyone in the Nazi underground. Their names and addresses are there. Plus, he knew a lot of politicians. He was very much involved with uh, politics in South America. He knew um, almost everyone in the government in Paraguay, including people involved with the national airlines, uh, people who have been fighter pilots. He knew everyone in Argentina of any importance. Uh, Rudel was a person who could uh, get things done because of his personality and his connections. He was sought after as a contact. Uh, and he, the, the importance of Rudel in terms of the Nazi underground cannot be overestimated. Rudel, Scorzani, and Remmer, the three of those men in particular, were extremely influential. Remmer, more or less, as an ideologue, as a, as a public speaker. Uh, Rudel and Scorzani as organizers, as facilitators, as people who got uh, the money to the right hands, people who uh, figured out which uh, causes they were going to support financially and with technology and with training that sort of thing. That was up to Rudel and Scorzani, who were the actual fighters in the field during World War II. So that's the importance of Rudel. He's a very important uh, person in this story. Um, he was uh, prominent in the underground. He uh, knew everyone, not just in South America, not just in Europe, but in the United States as well. His contacts extended into Canada, uh, into other parts of the United States, into New York, Chicago, Florida, everywhere. You're going to find uh, names, addresses, and phone numbers of a, a wide circle of friends um, in the United States as well as in, as, as in other countries. And that gives you an idea, um, the extent of the reach of this organization and the fact that we did nothing to go after Rudel to stop him from this organizing, to stop him from making these connections. 
to stop him from conducting these networks of uh, war criminals, uh, of terrorists and assassins and saboteurs. Um, the U.S. government turned a blind eye to it. In fact, we gave him a phone call when we needed help designing aircraft. This is the degree of, you know, the involvement of our country with these individuals, all in the name of anti-communism. Uh, tell us about HIAG, H-I-A-G. I may be mispronouncing that. No, that's fine. It's, it's, it's an acronym as well. Uh, it's an acronym for uh, a German phrase, which means Mutual Help Association of Former Waffen-SS Officers. Uh, it was started by an SS uh, general, a brigade of your, uh, I think it was Otto Kuhn. Uh, he led the SS division, uh, the Liebstandart uh, Adolf Hitler SS division during the war. Uh, he became a businessman after the war, uh, Otto Kuhn, and then eventually started to organize this uh, organization we're calling Hayek. Um, it was going to provide, uh, initially the idea was to provide financial assistance to uh, members of the SS. Um, if you were part of the SS and uh, in West Germany, uh, because West Germany now was sort of an allied puppet state, um, because the SS was a criminal organization. If you were a member of the SS, you could not collect, collect your pension. You know, other members of the military in the Wehrmacht, for instance, could collect their, their military pensions after the war. But if you belonged to the SS, which was a criminal organization, you were not allowed to collect pensions. So you were basically broke. So you had groups like Stille Hilfe, you had groups like Hayek and others, who would raise money for these SS officers who were destitute or who needed money. That was the ostensible reason for organizing um, HIAG and other groups like that. But that was the ostensible reason. It was like a, a charitable trust to help people who could not get their pensions through normal means. But actually it was raising money for a lot of other organizations as well and for a lot of other operations. HIAG was high on the list of organizations that were funding uh, liberation movements in different parts of the world, giving money to the Nazi underground in Latin America. Finally, by 1992, it took that long. It took uh, almost, more than 40 years. The West German government uh, finally declared HIAG to be a Nazi organization and disbanded it by 1992. Um, so it's a very long time that it was an operation. It was a very powerful group run by businessmen who had been Nazis. I mean, Kuhn was a businessman. And yet he had been, uh, you know, uh, a brigade fuhrer, the head of a brigade, you know, a brigade leader, uh, and led the SS division, Liebstandarte Adolf Hitler, a very high-profile organization. Uh, here's an SS officer, a very prominent guy, becomes a businessman after the war, uh, starts raising money from other businessmen who were also Nazis, particularly in the SS during the war. And they create an ad hoc uh, financial operation, not only to help, SS men who were down on their luck, who could not collect their pensions, uh, but to actually use that money as well to help foment rebellions, assassinations, and sabotage in different parts of the world, and to help facilitate the uh, the movement of the Nazi underground around the world. So that was Hayek. Um, Hayek is, uh, there's not much known about it. It led a very clandestine sort of existence. Uh, you don't get a lot of information on it, considering it lasted so long. But uh, other organizations got more publicity, like Dishvina or Odessa. Let's move then uh, the move of the discussion to Odessa, and then Dishvina and uh, Otto Skorzeny. Odessa first. Okay. Uh, Odessa, you've heard 
the name before uh, many times. The Odessa File was a famous novel by Frederick Forsyth. Uh, it was a famous movie starring John Voight. Um, the the movie uh, bears going back and watching it again because of a couple of little throwaway uh, pieces of information that make it look as though it is trying to tell you a different story. The story of Odessa File begins uh, on the day that uh, the assassination of President Kennedy is announced. John Voigt is a journalist. He's driving through Berlin, and uh, he hears this on the radio that Kennedy's been killed. And on the same day, uh, someone else has been killed, and there's a notebook, and et cetera, et cetera, at least to the Odessa file. What was Odessa? It was believed to have been the creation of a novelist, Frederick Forsyth, or it was the creation of uh, Simon Wiesenthal, the famous Nazi hunter, who came up with this idea that Odessa, another acronym, it stands for the Organization of Former SS Officers, um, you know, it was like an, uh, an idealized image of an underground Nazi group, and many historians have come out since then saying, well, you know, Odessa never really existed. There was never such an organization of uh, underground Nazis. It's, it's, a, it's a chimera. It's something that was invented by you know, the popular press, uh, by the media, by novelists in Hollywood, and there is no such, such organization. Well, as it turned out, there, there actually was. Um, there was a very famous, uh, there is a very famous Argentine uh, journalist, Uki Goñi, who uh, discovered Odessa documents in Europe uh, at the, uh, the area of the escape routes that went through Austria and northern Italy in the Tyrol. Uh, some of the official documents there are stamped Odessa, talk about Odessa quite specifically. I uh, include a couple of documents uh, in the book. Uh, that you can see for yourself, which openly discuss the existence of Odessa. Odessa existed. Um, it is an underground organization. I'm calling all of these groups by that generic umbrella term, Odessa, because it just happens to be easier than trying to break it out into Die Spina, Hayek, uh, Stille Hilfe, and all the others. Just mention Odessa. We, we know what we're talking about. It's the underground SS organization. Um, it may have started kind of uh, deliberately in 1944, in the early days of 1945, when the SS realized they had to get out of town, they had to create a network for themselves to survive. Uh, and then it became a bit more formalized. You had uh, an SS officer in Spain who was running uh, agents and then eventually running SS men into Argentina. You had Krunoslav Draganovic, uh, the Croatian Nazi priest who was running the rat lines. Uh, that became part of the Odessa uh, function, too. Many famous Nazi war criminals escaped using that route. So these routes were sophisticated. They did exist. They do exist. They continue to exist. Uh, we were involved with them to a certain extent. We know, for instance, that uh, Klaus Barbie escaped and was able to live comfortably for so long uh, because of the connivance of our own government. Those documents have been uh, revealed and made known. Um, many others have as well, although the U.S. government is still continuing to stonewall on that issue. But we know that uh, intelligence knew a lot more than uh, what they were giving to Israel or perhaps even Israel knew more than what they were going to act upon after the the uh, kidnapping of Adolf Eichmann from Argentina which turned into a political uh, blowback for them um, there was a lot that we know about Odessa now that we didn't know even then not even when Frederick Forsyth was writing about it it's um, it's part of this elaborate organization we're talking about which includes Dishpina which includes Otto Skorzeny Skorzeny uh, Hitler's favorite commando. Skorzeny was the man who rescued uh, Benito Mussolini after he had been kidnapped by royalists, uh, by, by Italian royalists. They were going to execute him. 
Um, Scorzani flies down with a couple of gliders to the top of the mountain, rescues uh, this very dramatic uh, rescue uh, mission, uh, saves Mussolini, brings him back to safety. Uh, a tall, huge man with a scar on his face. He was called Scarface, Scarface Scorzani, a uh, person with a big personality. He uh, also escaped at the end of the war. He was held uh, in custody at a prison camp and uh, managed to walk out of it very mysteriously and wound up in Spain, uh, in Franco, Spain. Once again, we have to remember we're talking about a geopolitical movement here and the extension of the Nazi underground in governments that were very pro-Nazi, very sympathetic to their cause, and that includes Franco, Spain, Salazar's Portugal, Perón's Argentina, uh, et cetera, et cetera. So there are all these governments around the world that were very much in favor of what the Nazis were trying to do, uh, that did not declare war on, on the Nazis during the war. Spain did not, Portugal did not. They were so-called neutral countries, but they were sympathetic towards the Nazis. Scorzani wound up there. Uh, de Grel for a while wound up there. So Otto Scorzani uh, cannot stay out of the limelight. He cannot stay out of the action. He has to stay involved. He's a dedicated Nazi. He loved Hitler. Hitler uh, loved him. This was a mutual admiration society. Uh, and Scorzani did what he could to help other SS men to escape justice and to organize networks and to go after the people that were the enemies, the people that he thought were people who had betrayed the, the, the Aryan race in general terms or specifically Germany or the Third Reich or the party in more specific terms. And that involved, of course, the Jews. It involved the state of Israel. Scorzani became very involved in uh, moving money and in moving arms. He was involved with a... Uh, with a, uh, a corporation, a, an arms-dealing corporation called Merix, uh, very well-known operation. He was shipping guns to the Middle East through that company, through a number of other companies, too, through dummy corporations. Uh, we have documentation only some of this. We don't have all of it. He was involved in moving money uh, all over the world, including, to, of course, to Latin America, possibly to Asia. My sources are implying to me. Um, we're talking about a man who was basically the CEO of Odessa, a person who was at the board of directors along with Rudel, uh, running the operations, making sure that their people were supported. Ask yourself this question if you think this is all quite unbelievable. We know that the documentation is there showing the movement of money to support, for instance, Arab uh, nationalist movements in the Middle East and liberation movements in the Middle East. We know the money came from the Nazis. We know the money came from Swiss bank accounts run by the Nazis. We know that Scorzani's fingerprints are all over it, uh, Rudel's as well. We know all of this is happening. Why would Otto Scorzani, a dedicated Nazi as he was, why would he spend money on the Arab liberation movements? Why would he spend money on Arab nationalism? Why would he go to that extent? We're talking millions of dollars. We're talking about arms deals. We're talking about moving personnel. Uh, we're talking about what they used to call Scorzani's Egypt because he moved so many people into Egypt to help the Nasser regime. Why would he do all of this as a dedicated Nazi? It's only because, from my point of view, that there was a common cause between these movements and, and Nazism, between these movements and what he was trying to do in the underground. These people were, were becoming uh, enriched by this uh, connection with Scorzani. He was helping his own people, obviously. He was helping SS men all over the world. He was getting them jobs. He was getting them false documentation. Wherever they were living in Europe, in Latin America, or other parts of the world, he was very involved in that. But at the same, by the same token, he was using money that could have been used 
to help a bunch of aging SS officers in, you know, in Argentina. He was taking that money and shifting it to Arab nationalist movements. He was shipping it to the Palestine Liberation Organization. He was shipping it to people who were going to fight against Israel. This indicates the degree of ideological allegiance that people like Skorzeny and Hans Ulrich Rudel and Otto Remmer, Klaus Barbie, Franz Stangl, Eric Priebke, the list goes on and on and on, Walter Rauch. This indicates the degree of loyalty they had to this ideal, that they would uh, sacrifice themselves, sacrifice their, their finances, risk being caught, risk uh, capture, in order to help other people fight against their common enemies. This was an ideological commitment. Uh, Scorzini at one point tried to poo-poo this and say, well, you know, I'll sell guns to anyone. Uh, you know, it doesn't matter what about their ideology. But the facts argue against that. The facts argue that Scorzini was overwhelmingly supplying uh, right-wing uh, anti-communist or anti-Jewish organizations, as was Rudel and everyone else involved in Odessa. Uh, before we move on to uh, how the uh, use of uh, jihadism as proxy war uh, applies to uh, the U.S. and the Cold War, uh, with Scorzini, tell us briefly about the Paladin Mercenary Group. Oh, the Paladin Mercenaries. Well, this was yeah. part of uh, Scorzini's operation as well. I mean, Paladin was, um, you know, one of those... Uh, 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 how shall I put it? Um, it was based in Spain. It was, uh, of course, as Scorzani was. Paladin was, he loved the name uh, Paladin, by the way. You might remember there was a television program with the same name out around that same time. Uh, and Scorzani felt, he sort of identified with this idea of a, of a, of this black knight wandering in the, you know, in, in the world and, you know, righting wrongs and, you know, uh, meeting out justice. Um, he was, but very involved with Paladin in Egypt, for instance, and in Argentina and other countries in the world. Paladin would supply uh, training and financing and support to a number of, uh, of his pet causes, which involved, of course, Arab nationalism. He was very involved in Egypt. Um, I believe one of the people that he hired uh, to run Paladin Group, one of the managers that he, uh, that he hired was uh, someone who also worked for Goebbels' propaganda ministry. We talked about... Um, Werner Naumann, and we talked about Johann von Leers. You know, the people who worked in the propaganda ministry were propagandists. They were ideologues. They were people who uh, were the ones who put the spin on the Nazi ideology for the masses. These are people who were true believers. So he hired somebody like that uh, to be the, the sort of the author, the, the, the manager, the business manager, rather, for, for the Paladin group. Um, Paladin also supplied a lot of support for the PLO, for the Palestine Liberation Organization. Uh, Paladin group was the front for Scorzani's operations in the Middle East, as well as in Argentina and other parts of the world. Paladin was Scorzani's, uh, was Scorzani's pet, uh, corporation for a long time. He was, as we know, also involved with other, you know, groups. He was involved with, um, the HS Lucht Corporation, uh, which was one of those, you know, mysterious import-export companies, um, you know, like Universal Exports in the, uh, the James Bond, uh, books. Uh, this was the Nazi version, HS Lucht. He um, was also involved with Mertens, uh, running guns, uh, running, he was with Marex, which was uh, run by Mertens. I mean, he was, if there was a gun running operation in the world, uh, you could bet that Scorzani was somehow involved with it, even if it involved selling weapons to the Russians from time to time, as Scorzani said he would sell to anybody. But overwhelmingly, 
uh, his heart was towards these groups that we mentioned in, in Egypt. I think that was uh, von Schubert, uh, Gerhard Hartmut von Schubert, who was the manager of Paladin in, in Egypt. And as I say, the Palestine Liberation Organization directly was supported by Paladin Group. And again, behind Paladin is Scorzani. So, you know, if you start uh, digging at the arms deals of the 1950s, 60s, 70s, you're going to find Scorzani involved in it. And if not Scorzani, one of his associates involved with in it. Um, we sort of glamorize a little bit, uh, romanticize the role of arms dealers, you know, the Lord of War and all of that uh, to a certain extent, but the reality is far more uh, seedy, uh, far more sinister, uh, the arms dealers. and In fact, there was, uh, we won't get to it this time, but uh, one of the arms dealers involved in this uh, discovery of Nazis in Indonesia, you know, was an Indonesian arms dealer who was selling guns to the Taliban and all the rest of it. This world is a different world entirely. It's an amoral, unethical world, and it was perfect for Scorzani. It reminds me that there is an old saying, but we don't see things as they are. We see things as we are. And uh, certainly I think anyone who reads your book will discover uh, an enormous chasm between the, quote, popular wisdom, unquote, perhaps that's an oxymoron, and right. uh, and the reality of uh, what is actually taking place in world affairs. Uh, Peter, a major focal point of the Hitler legacy is what you call weaponized religion, and uh, we have been speaking about uh, the use of Muslim jihadis as proxy warriors, and in a chapter of your book called American Jihad. You mentioned how uh, just as the U.S. took in people like Scorzani and Galen and others, uh, some of the most uh, well-connected and uh, utterly lethally inclined uh, members of the Third Reich, many of them war criminals, and people who, by the way, hated the United States. I mean, and maybe hated it even more than they they hated uh, the Soviet Union. My own feeling is they thought we were the big prize for them to, to bag. The Soviet Union, I don't think they thought, would last all that long. But that, that, that's a, a personal opinion. But uh, the U.S. picked up this con- this stratagem of jihadis as proxy warriors. This, however, in the Cold War. If you would tell us about that in a couple of the key names that you mentioned. One, of course, is the Muslim Brotherhood, and also a name that is really pivotal in uh, analysis of the post-war Nazi underground, the one that we just don't hear very often, François Genoux. Sure. Um, yes, the, the idea of proxy warriors is, is very important to this subject, and it's, it's, it's something that I've been trying to communicate to, to Muslims as well. The idea that this entire concept of jihad, that the way it's used today, uh, by the extremist groups is really um, uh, an artifact of uh, the proxy wars that were taking place in, in, during the Cold War and, and before the Cold War. The idea that they were Muslims were being used as proxy warriors to fight other people's battles, uh, particularly between the United States and Russia at the time of the Cold War, um, to try to get uh, some of the Muslim uh, activists to realize that they were being manipulated and used and that this whole idea of global jihad is a is, is a fantasy of the West more than it is of, of Islamists themselves that they just sort of took it upon themselves once it had been created, but that this was a kind of an Orientalist fantasy that there would be something called a global jihad of all Muslims against all the infidels. 
Um, so yeah, a proxy warrior is, is exactly what they are, what they were at that time, what they still are in my estimation. And they're being manipulated by religion. It's the weaponization of religion, as you mentioned. Uh, we talk about the, uh, the Muslim Brotherhood, for instance, and, uh, that's something which is, ex which is a hot button topic these days. Uh, people fall on both sides of that, of that discussion. Uh, is the Muslim Brotherhood a terrorist organization or not? Uh, some countries have labeled it a terrorist organization. And yet we have Muslim Brotherhood operations here in the United States. So what is the difference and how does it look uh, to an intelligence officer or to somebody involved in, in military or geopolitical uh, uh, operations? I have a quotation from President Eisenhower at the very beginning of that chapter of American Jihad, which pretty much lays it out. Uh, Eisenhower writes a letter to the head of the uh, Presbyterian Church back in 1958. And he says, I quote, I assure you that I never fail in any communication with Arab leaders, oral or written, to stress the importance of the spiritual factor in our relationships. I have argued that belief in God should create between them and us the common purpose of opposing atheistic communism. Well, there you have it in a nutshell. I mean, that's exactly what this was all about, create common cause say that communists are atheists, therefore we should all be on the same side and fight. And that wasn't an empty gesture. That wasn't uh, simply Eisenhower saying, it would be really nice if you guys would get on our side and fight against the Russians. Uh, that took on a very material uh, reality as time went by, and as the CIA became very involved in trying to use one uh, Islamic group after another in order to form a kind of uh, a consortium or a cartel to go against the Soviet Union. People who basically had nothing in common except a kind of superficial allegiance to the Quran and to, to, to the Islamic faith, but there were ethnic divisions, linguistic divisions, uh, political problems, uh, tribal rivalries, all the rest of it, which CIA then tried to ameliorate and tried to uh, downplay all of these issues and to get everybody you know, singing from the same page in the hymnal uh, no pun intended, and to go after the uh, to go after the Soviet Union altogether as a block, and this is what Eisenhower was talking about in 1958. Even earlier in 57, uh, he thought that uh, we should do everything possible, as I say in in the Hitler legacy, to stress the holy war aspect. Uh, Alan Dulles actually commented, according to the to the memorandum of conference uh, with the president, dated September 7, 1957. Dulles said that if the Arabs have a holy war, they would want it to be against Israel. Very perceptive of Dulles. The president then recalled, however, that Saud, King Saud of Saudi Arabia, after his visit to the United States, had called on all Arabs to oppose communism. So you see that the, the idea of weaponizing religion uh, began with Max von Oppenheim you know, in, in, the, in the 20th century context began with him and this idea of global jihad, but then uh, after he dropped the ball and after the Nazis dropped the ball and al-Husseini kind of dropped the ball, then Eisenhower picks it up and decides that he's going to run with it. And from the 1950s into the 1960s and 70s, we see the CIA, uh, who had been very involved under Dulles with uh, helping Nasser get his share of Nazis, uh, with helping Argentina and Bolivia getting their share of Nazis. Now Dulles is, uh, not Dulles, but now the CIA, is very involved now in deciding that we need more than just the Nazis, we need also the Muslims. So they're setting up uh, a mosque in Munich 
which is basically a CIA-run operation uh, in trying to get all the Muslim, different warring Muslim factions from Central Asia and the Middle East and North Africa to all work together to oppose communism. And the funny thing, I mean, I don't know if we would say funny, but sad or, or disturbing fact is that this mosque, this CIA operation, which then became a kind of headquarters for Muslim Brotherhood and for groups allied with them, was set up in Munich, in Munich, Germany, which was the birthplace of the Nazi party. Uh, the kind of weird coincidence uh, that, that that represents is a little uh, unnerving, but there you have it. So they put the, uh, the mosque in Munich, they financed it heavily, they set up a radio station uh, in Germany, which was broadcasting in various Central Asian dialects as well as Arabic and Farsi and Urdu uh, to the rest of the Muslim population, telling them to rise up against the, the Soviet Union, uh, so on and so forth. All of this is taking place. Eisenhower then uh, invites uh, one of the leaders of the Muslim Brotherhood to the United States, to Washington. He attends a meeting of Muslim leaders where Eisenhower is trying to convince all of the Muslims to get together and oppose Soviet communism. So this is, this is the path we went on. This is the path we, we started on. And we can't forget that at the same time that this is happening in the 1950s to the 1960s and 1970s, we are also, at the same time, working with Nazi organizations and prominent Nazis, like Skorzeny, like Hansel Rebrudel. We're working with them, you know, to fight communism on another front, which is the Nazi uh, uh, anti-communist front, at the same time that we're helping uh, Muslims unite and bury their differences so they can go after the Soviet Union. We are in bed with the people who would later then come and turn against us very, very quickly once the Soviet Union had fallen. Remember, the Nazis' goal was to get rid of both the Soviet Union and the United States. Um, and this could be uh, assumed to be the goal of some of the more fanatic of the Islamic activists who want to see, uh, of course, the Soviet Union has fallen, but Russia is still there, very powerful, very much in everyone's face. But now the United States is considered to be the other major player that they're, they're waiting to, to destroy, if they possibly can. Um, this was part of the Nazi uh, dream, was to see a strong, united Germany once again, uh, standing up to the Russians on the one side and the Americans on the other, and creating a new Reich, maybe a fourth Reich in this case. But the people who started the Third Reich were very much involved in creating the apparatus worldwide to ensure that a fourth Reich would be a possibility. Uh, tell us about Francois Genoux. Uh, here is a, uh, a person who actually met Adolf Hitler during the war. Uh, he was Swiss, French, Swiss. Uh, Francois Genoux became a, a banker. He was very involved with, a, with one of the Swiss banks that was actually the repository for much of the stolen Nazi treasury that wound up uh, in Switzerland after the war. Uh, as you may recall, it wasn't until the 1990s or so that we began to realize the extent of the Swiss holdings uh, that, uh, of Nazi gold and other Nazi treasures that the Swiss banks had. And we were sort of pulling teeth in uh, Bern and in Zurich and in Geneva to try to get uh, understanding as to, the, to how much money there really was there that the Nazis had taken, how much uh, was buried in their vaults. Francois Genot was the guy who had the key to those vaults. Uh, Genot was the guy who was very much involved in making sure that Arab nationalist movements in North Africa and the Middle East were being appropriately funded. When Adolf Eichmann was arrested, uh, kidnapped out of uh, Argentina by Israeli commandos and taken to Jerusalem to stand trial, the person who arranged for his uh, defense attorneys was Francois Genot, and the one who paid for them was Francois Genot. 
he was very much involved in helping to finance the uh, movements such as the PLO, the PFLP in Palestine. He was very much involved in North African liberation movements, for instance, in uh, Morocco, Tunisia, and Algeria. Um, this was all part of his program. This was this was something, again, he could have easily have made more money uh, supporting other groups in other places, but he had the key to the Nazi money in Switzerland, and that money was earmarked for a Nazi uh, for a Nazi agenda, and Junot was perfect for that because he was a devoted Nazi. He had been uh, totally blown away by his meeting with Hitler uh, in, in the days just before the outbreak of the war. Um, he was a person who was a dedicated Nazi. To the end of his days, he died uh, only a few years ago. Um, actually, he was going to be arrested uh, on some of these charges, uh, although it was very, very late in the day. Um, they claim he may have committed suicide. But Genot was at the center of this. Genot was very much involved with people like Scorzani and Rudel. This was all part of the same coterie of, uh, of financiers and uh, 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 the Nazi um, infrastructure for the for the underground, for what we're calling Odessa. Uh, Peter, you uh, talk about a number of different examples of weaponized religion, and we're going to come back to uh, uh, this uh, many times, and, and, and I want to devote uh, an entire program to your revelatory coverage of the Nazi diaspora to Southeast Asia and the Indonesian archipelago, but uh, the weaponization of Buddhism. Let's start with Tibetan Buddhism and perhaps what could be viewed as the genesis of this, which, which was the SS, uh, quote, archaeological, unquote, mission to Tibet, something that has a sort of mythical slash ideological, a mythical slash ideological component a la Ananerba, and it also had a very uh, concrete geopolitical aspect, because of course uh, Tibet is right in the middle, not in the middle, but is uh, central to, to the concept of the Earth Island and places like China and India. And so how do we find uh, His Holiness the Dalai Lama networking with SS officers like Heinrich Harrer and uh, Bruno Begay? Yeah, this is... Um one of those things that I was not prepared to find when I found it, and I, I came across it when I was researching on Holy Alliance uh, the first time, that was back in the 90s, and um, I had come across a documentation at the National Archives that showed that the Nazis, or the SS in particular, had financed an expedition to Tibet in 1938. I thought this was one of those things that you read about in these speculative fiction books, you know, sort of the Tibetan connection to the Nazis and stuff. Um, I didn't realize it actually happened. Um, until I had done the research, and I was uh, startled, I mean, by this idea. I couldn't, you know, get my head around it. I read the newspaper reports that were published at the time, uh, saying the first white men in Lhasa, for instance, uh, uh, some of the newspaper articles, which was not exactly true, but it was close. And uh, what I did is when I then went to the Tibet House in New York City. Uh, Tibet House is a, uh, uh, a series of... Uh, of places around the country, around the world, uh, run to promote, you know, Tibetan uh, ideas, Tibetan religion, Tibetan politics, uh, you know, part of the Dalai Lama's uh, operation, uh, financed by people like Richard Gere and uh, Robert Thurman and people of that nature, very prominent uh, Hollywood celebrity types, and etc., um, which I only found out um, while I was researching the Hitler legacy that Tibet House was actually a CIA front, among other things. But at the time, I did not know this when I was researching uh, on Holy Alliance. And I, I found video 
footage, there's documentary footage, there's photographs, there's a lot of documentation on this particular expedition. And the expedition was run by a man called Ernst Schaefer, who was a very well-known uh, anthropologist. He uh, had been to the United States, he had lectured in various places before the war, of course. Uh, he was a respected uh, author of books on on uh, Central Asia, for instance, sort of like a Sven Hedin of, Swiss, of uh, Sweden. He uh, was that kind of an explorer, you know, kind of an adventurer type. Um, and he was leading the expedition to Tibet in 1938 with SS flags and swastika armbands and all the whole thing. And uh, among his retinue was uh, Bruno Beguer, as you mentioned, uh, and a few others. Um, they were measuring skulls of Tibetans, crania, to see, you know, if there's, to see what the racial makeup, the ethnic uh, origins might be of the Tibetans. The idea that maybe the Tibetans were the lost race, the uh, the origin of the Aryan people, which was kind of a Himmler concept, one of his fantasies, was that uh, Tibet was the origin, you know, in place of mystical power uh, and genetic purity. Uh, it was still a kind of a feudal monarchy. All of these things appealed to Himmler. Uh, plus, of course, there was the idea that they had, you know, hidden scriptures and sacred texts and sacred objects, uh, very Indiana Jones. They were going to take all of this stuff back with them and see how that could be used uh, in the interests of the Reich. So this expedition took place in 38. Um, at that point, uh, the Dalai Lama, I think, was still a child. I don't believe he met any of these individuals at that time, um, but uh, the story would develop a bit later. So during the war... Uh, 38 is when pretty much just before the war broke out. In 39, the war was in full flower. And all of these members of the Tibet expedition, the SS expedition, were back in Germany. And they were back at, at work uh, in fields that would have been more conducive to whatever the war effort might have been. In the case of Bruno Beguer, um, this is the thing that astonished, astonished me mostly, I think, uh, it, it opened my mind to the possibility that uh, a lot of the New Age information that we're given all the time about Tibet and about the mysterious East, all this Orientalist kind of fantasy might have a big hole in it. And that's when we discovered that Bruno Beguer, uh, the SS man who was out there measuring crania among the Tibetans uh, for ethnographic studies or whatever, uh, was now back in Germany uh, deciding he was going to create a museum of uh, human beings. And he was going to show the pr progress, the different kinds of races and in order to do this, he needed specimens. And he went to a concentration camp. Uh, he looked at the living specimens that were there, human beings, pointed to the ones he wanted, had them murdered, and had the skeletal material, or had the, actually all the bodies shipped to him for defleshing uh, so that he could make sure that he would have perfect skeletal material to show in his museum. He was responsible for the deaths of over 80 individuals from the concentration camps. This was a man who had been to Tibet, who had attended religious ceremonies there, had gone to the, to the Buddhist temples, you know, had spent a lot of time there, came back and committed murderous atrocities, for which he spent, I think, not more than about two years altogether in prison. And then later in his life, considered himself a friend of Tibet, actually wrote letters to the Dalai Lama's uh, organization in Dharamsala, in northern India, which were published at one point on their website, I believe they've since been taken down, talking about his fond memories of Tibet. There's photographs of the Dalai Lama with Bruno Beguer, uh, a man who was a war criminal responsible for, for murder, I mean for, for war crimes, unbelievable war crimes, picking out human beings as specimens for a museum. This is something you might hear about in a horror film, 
And yet here was Beggar actually doing it and proud of having done it. And, and networking with the Dalai Lama decades afterward. Um, yes. It, it, there was a movie in the late 90s you know, starring Brad Pitt as a guy named Heinrich Horror, last name H-A-R-R-E-R. He too was SS, and he was more deeply involved with uh, the Dalai Lama. Tell us about Heinrich Horror and perhaps uh, the, the difference between the celluloid Heinrich Horror as portrayed by Brad Pitt and the remarkable uh, covert reality of Heinrich Horror as you have set it forth in the Hitler legacy. Well, I've been fascinated by Horror for a long time. I have, uh, I think, a first edition of his book, Seven Years in Tibet, um, that I read uh, years and years ago and was not aware of the entire story at the time. Of course, nobody was. Um, Harrer was uh, a mountaineer. He became famous as a mountain climber, uh, one of these very aggressive physical guys, an Austrian, had his picture taken with Hitler, uh, with members of his team, his mountain, uh, mountaineering team, had photographs taken with Heinrich Himmler at a dinner. Uh, Harrer was a golden boy uh, of, of the Third Reich, showing that what, what remarkable specimens the SS was producing. So here was a, a young, blonde SS officer uh, who then is captured uh, behind enemy lines in India. The, the story, the cover story is he was going mountaineering again. He was going to climb some kind of mountain uh, in the border between India and, uh, and Tibet and was captured by the British when the war broke out, spent some time in a prison camp, and eventually he and a friend, uh, Peter Aufschneider, they, they escaped from the prison uh, prisoner camp, prison prisoner of war camp, and made their way uh, mostly by foot uh, through the mountains, uh, across the passes, and into Tibet, where, to make a long story short, Heinrich Herrer became a kind of tutor to the young Dalai Lama, who's uh, uh, sort of a pubescent teen at this point, and he becomes the, the tutor to the Dalai Lama. He be, he's befriended by the Dalai Lama. He introduces uh, the Dalai Lama to the Western world in general, to radio, to movies, to all sorts of things that the, the Dalai Lama would not ordinarily been introduced to, and here's a guy who's telling him all about this and you know telling him all of these stories. That's the, the pleasant story that we're given uh, in Heinrich Harrer's book, in which he makes no mention of the fact that he was a member of the SS. And not only, as we find out later, was he a member of the SS, he was also a member of the SA, of the Sturmabteilung, the stormtroopers. Uh, this was a devoted Nazi, an Austrian Nazi. Uh, Austria has given us some of the most virulent Nazis, more than Germany. Of course, Austria gave us Hitler. Um, Austria is the country where you find a lot of the very, very, uh, very doctrinaire, very ideological Nazis uh, coming from, and Herrer was no exception. Herrer was a devoted Nazi. He, he downplayed it, uh, of course, saying that he only joined the SS uh, because he had to, in order to do what he wanted to do, uh, in order to, you know, to go on these trips and go on these journeys and stuff. Uh, it was like a, a, a business decision, basically, according to Herrer until his SS dossier came to light, and we discover he was not only in the SS, he was also in the SA, he was a member of the Nazi Party, I believe he joined the Nazi Party when it was still illegal in Austria to do so. This was a man who was a Nazi, there's no question about it. So we have to put that to rest right now. He was not an innocent uh, who just had to be, you know, had to join the SS. The way Werner von Braun says the same thing, you know, oh, I, you know, I had to join the SS because you had to in order to work at this factory or something, which was nonsense. Um, so here's Harrer with the Dalai Lama. He's there right up until the point of the Chinese invasion. We have uh, CIA going up into Tibet 
to try to cut deals and try to figure out how they're going to help the Dalai Lama to escape. There's all sorts of uh, secret meetings taking place. The reports have been published. They're now documented. At the time that the CIA is meeting with the Dalai Lama and the Dalai Lama's representatives, his associates, his brothers, and some of the other people in the government, Heinrich Herrer is there. He's still there. He had to have known what was going on. Uh, according to Herrer, he was an intimate of the palace. He knew everything that was going on. If white people started showing up in Lhasa, he would be the first to know about it. He never talks about this, never discusses it. Um, slowly, as more and more information comes out, and he's written other books since then, uh, before his death a few years ago, uh, people began uncovering more and more of the Harrer background and discovering that he was very involved with American intelligence, at least, if not with other intelligence agencies also. Uh, he was spying. And he was an anti-communist, and let's face it, so is the Dalai Lama. The Dalai Lama's country was invaded by communist China. Um, the Dalai Lama has uh, a very anti-communist, uh, of course, perspective on these things, as he should. Um, his, he was the leader of the country, both politically and spiritually, uh, one of the few left who could claim that kind of leadership role. Um, so I'm not uh, taking it away from the Dalai Lama by saying that he was an anti-communist, but being an anti-communist, the problem is it... it, it gives you strange bedfellows, as it does in the United States, as it does anywhere else. Becoming anti-communist is almost a magnet for the extreme right, for, uh, for pro-Nazis, for fascists of various kinds. There's almost no way out of it. It's very hard to, be, to take the middle path and have a high moral ground and saying, well, I'm anti-communist and I'm anti-Nazi at the same time. It's easier to be one or the other. Uh, many of our American politicians have been sacrificed because they uh, wanted to walk the middle path and... Uh, a plague on both your houses. But as it turned out, um, it's very difficult to do that. The Dalai Lama is no exception. We don't see him photographs with leftists, for instance. We don't see him taking photographs with communist leaders. The Dalai Lama's photographs are with right-wing types, with Nazis, with Bruno Beger, with Heinrich Herrer, with Miguel Serrano of Chile, a rabid Nazi ideologue who was an ambassador to India at the time the Dalai Lama was, was living in India. Uh, we have He's surrounded by people who are from the extreme uh, fascist Nazi uh, background. And his position is, of course, anti-communist as well. And, you know, a Tibetan uh, military group was raised under the Dalai Lama, trained by the CIA uh, to go and fight the communists. So they were funded. They were given guns. They were given training. Not enough guns, not enough training, not enough money, because the CIA didn't want to cause an actual war with China. But they were looking at giving China a bit of a stomach ache by funding a Tibetan expeditionary force to go and fight against them. So this was all part of the deal. The Dalai Lama had to know that the kind of funding he was getting from CIA was not going to liberate his country, uh, that it was just simply a drop in the bucket uh, for you know cosmetic purposes and to you know to bother the Chinese, but not really to upset them too much. So part of the whole geopolitical structure around the Dalai Lama is extremely suspect. Uh, you point out that Heinrich Carr, again, uh, like so many SS officers, was working uh, on covert ops for American intel again. Well, yes. I mean, uh, it, the suspicion started when he wrote a book about a trip that he took to Papua New Guinea. Um, talking about I Come from the Stone Age, I think was the title of the book, if I'm not mistaken. And I read the book. I, I, uh, I went through it. And it's a very strange book compared to Seven Years in Tibet. It's very low on detail, particularly considering that he was in Papua New Guinea at a time when the Dutch were on the verge of losing that territory. Um, 
he was in he was in there at a very peculiar time and says almost nothing about it. Virtually discusses very little about it. Discusses very little about some of the people that he met and some of the places that he was. It looked as though it was a cover story for something, and this was picked up by reviewers with background in anthropology, in archaeology, and ethnography, who read the book and said, "What is he talking about?" You know, it looked very much as if it had been a government-sponsored text, as if some government somewhere had just sent him there to write this thing, and it had nothing to do with anything in particular. It was not one of his more successful books, but the suspicion was brought out at that point that maybe he was an intelligence operative. And yes, as late as the 1960s at least, and the 1970s, the early 1970s, from what I can understand, Harrer was uh, in the employ, or if not in the employ, financially somehow cooperating, collaborating with Western intelligence services. I think there's, at this point, no doubt about it. it it's the only explanation that makes sense. Peter, uh, <clears throat> we have about uh, two and a half minutes left uh, on this slide, and there are many topics I want to cover in interviews to come. We've already covered a, a lot of ground. We still have a long way to go, and I'm looking forward to this. I just want to say... From an editorial, a personal editorial standpoint, I've, I'm in my 36th year on the air. And because of the very nature of radio and what I do, <clears throat> the information I'm presenting is sequential. I have to do it episodically. And uh, I was so excited to read your book because there are so many points, including about the Dalai Lama, Beguer, uh, Heinrich Haar, and, and so many of these things that I have been conveying to the listeners, again, episodically and necessarily because of the nature of the medium, and yet in your book, from one cover to the next, it is just a download, uh, downloaded in sort of almost a, uh, a well, like a hellish uh, cornucopia. It, it is quite, <laughs> quite remarkable. Uh, again, people ask me, well, I believe what you're saying, but I don't know what to do about it. Well, obviously... Uh, think globally, act locally. This, uh, getting this book and reading it and telling others about it is something that uh, people can do, and I don't get money from this at all. Uh, Peter, tell them where they can get the book and find out more on your blog. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. Yes, uh, you can get the book, at, of course, on Amazon.com, uh, at Barnes & Noble. You can, uh, all the usual sources. You can uh, find my website at PeterLavenda.com. Um, it has links to a Hitler legacy site, which I'm trying to uh, to build up at the moment, and to some of the other sites of the other books that I've done. Um, and I update uh, when I get new information, as I have from time to time. I do get new information that was not included in the Hitler legacy, and I update it on that website, on peterlavenda.com. This concludes, for the record, program number 842, interview with Peter Lavenda number 5 about the Hitler legacy. This is being recorded on March 29th of the year 2015. For Peter Lavenda, this is Dave Emery saying thanks for listening.